God, we are so thankful for another year, and Lord, as we stop and uh, reflect on your faithfulness and your goodness to us over 2018, Lord, our hearts are just filled with gratitude, thankfulness, God, that you use a, a people with flaws and with weaknesses and with struggles to proclaim the magnificence of your name. And Lord, with a new year, a new calendar year, many of our struggles and issues do not just magically go away. God, we are so much in need of, of you and your grace. God, we want to behold your glory in our lives. And God, we pray that in this moment as we look at um, the end of John 4, God, that you would lift up the name of Jesus so high that we see your glory, that it changes us, that it conforms us to the image of Christ. So God, be at work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is one area of your life that constantly needs improvement? What's one area of your life that constantly needs attention, that constantly needs growth? I'm sure you've been thinking about that question a lot as you've been thinking through uh, New Year's resolutions, if you're into that, about kind of self-improvement. And if you're into that, statistically speaking, 80% of them actually fail uh, by February. So enjoy the next couple weeks with those resolutions. But what's... What's one area of your life that always needs improvement, not just during January, not just during a particular year, but constant improvement? Maybe you're thinking about your physical health, thinking about your diet or exercise. That's, that's a good answer. We always need to improve our physical bodies. Maybe you're thinking about a particular relationship, maybe your marriage or a friendship or uh, some sort of other relationship in your life needs improvement. That's a good one as well. Maybe you're thinking about uh, your relationship with God. Maybe you went kind of the, the spiritual route, which is a good route to go. And you're thinking about areas of your walk with God that need improvement. That's a good place to start. But within your relationship with the Lord, what area of your walk with the Lord needs improvement? Okay, maybe for some of us, prayer comes to mind. You think, yeah, I can always improve my prayer life. Maybe scripture memorization is something you can always improve on. Maybe uh, being content in Christ or sharing Christ more consistently. There's all kinds of areas within our relationship with God that needs constant improvement. And yet what I want to suggest to us this morning is what I think is the most important and the most needed area of our relationship with God that always needs improvement is trust. I think faith in God is not only the foundation in our relationship with God, but it is the fuel by which we grow as followers of Jesus. Trust in God. Remember what the author of Hebrews said in uh, Hebrews 11.6, says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And you stop and think about that. That is, a, that is quite a statement about faith. And you think about all the ways that we can please God. You can look through that list, prayer and scripture memorization, evangelism, contentment. All those things are impossible without faith and trust in God. And so this morning, we're going to see kind of an illustration of faith through this individual, this official, this nobleman of the king's court. That I think is going to be really helpful, helpful for us because sometimes we think about faith as only the thing that kickstarts our relationship with God. 
That faith is what, you know, allows us to be saved, allows us to be a child of God. And yet, I want us to think about faith as something that allows us to actually grow as a follower of Jesus, that it is the fuel by which we become closer to Jesus. And so just a moment, I'm going to unpack kind of this individual's faith and trust, kind of his development and his growth. But first, uh, I don't know if you picked up on this in our passage, but there are some bizarre things that take place in our passage. If you noticed it uh, intently here, there's some kind of weird things that go on that I want to stop and explain before we dive into the official's uh, faith. Okay, let me point out three kind of bizarre occurrences that happen in our passage, starting in verse 43. Number one, I want to point out that Jesus was rejected by his own, okay, by his own people. As you look in verse 43, it tells us that after Jesus spent two days in Samaria, he now goes back home. He goes back to Galilee. And as we looked at last week, his ministry in Samaria was incredibly successful. You have maybe the whole town of Sychar who believed in Jesus, that they weren't just enthralled with his miracles and his signs, but they actually believed the word and the message of Jesus resulting in genuine faith. And so verse 43 tells us that he leaves Samaria, where he has probably the best response he's ever going to get throughout his ministry, and he goes back home to Galilee. Okay, now let me also point out the fact that Jesus has done quite a lot of traveling throughout these first couple of chapters. Jesus has been from Bethany to Cana to Capernaum to Jerusalem to Judea, and now back again to Galilee by way of Samaria. Now, as I point out, Galilee is where Jesus grew up here in in Nazareth. Let me just point out this map here. Um, When you think about Galilee throughout Scripture, think about almost like a county, like Hamilton County. Like within Hamilton County, you've got Westfield, Noblesville, Fishers, Carmel. We've got these different cities and even different townships within uh, Hamilton County. That's the same thing with Galilee. Okay, Galilee is Jesus' hometown, but he kind of grew up in Nazareth right here. And our passage takes place in Cana right up there. Can you guys see that Okay. It's my laser. Okay, so that's about 10 miles from where Jesus grew up. And so as he comes back to, get, to Cana, people were familiar with Jesus. They knew about Jesus. They surely have heard about all the powerful miracles that he's done so far. And the official whose son is sick is about 20 miles from Cana up here uh, in Capernaum. Okay, about 15 to 20 miles. So that just kind of gives you a context of where we are in our passage that Jesus is back at his old stomping grounds. Now here's kind of the bizarre thing that takes place because according to verse 44, Jesus comes back home, but his people reject him. If you look at verse 44, look at that word for. It's a really important word. This word is used to explain uh, why Jesus is traveling from Samaria to Galilee. Okay, if you look at it, it says, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for, or here's the reason, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now that's bizarre. It seems like John is suggesting that the reason Jesus is leaving Samaria, where he had great success, and he goes to Galilee, is because they're going to reject him. That's a strange statement, to deliberately and intentionally go to a place where they will not honor him and they will not believe in his message. And yet this is not new. John chapter 1 verse 11 set the stage for Jesus' strategy and for his game plan. It says, he came to his own and yet his own people did not receive him. 
And so verse 44 seems bizarre on the front end, and yet this was not strange to Jesus. It was part of his plan from the beginning. In fact, this is a major theme that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John, is that his own people, the Jewish people, are going to continue to reject Jesus. In fact, chapter 6, verse 66, thousands of followers, thousands of his own disciples will just leave Jesus after probably his hardest and strangest teaching. In John chapter 12, verse 37, John's summary of the unbelief of the Jews, where he says, though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. And so his own people reject him. Second bizarre occurrence in this passage I want to point out is that they welcome him, and yet they do not believe in him. Okay, we're told, you know, he moves from Samaria to Galilee because he's going to be rejected in Galilee. But then you get to verse 45, and it's not what you would expect for this verse to say. It says, so therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans did what? They welcomed him. That's, that's kind of strange after verse 44, where it says that he's going to a place that would show him no honor. Why would John say that they welcome here? Is John making a mistake here? Well, no. The way that he's using the word welcome there is more of the way of showing him hospitality. Okay, his hometown, his people were proud of Jesus. They knew of the signs that he had performed, and yet they're still not buying what he's selling. They're still not accepting his message and surrendering their lives to him. Okay, kind of a, a weird example, but imagine if someone within our congregation, let's say we've got a senior in high school who goes off to college, and uh, he or she invents a brand new car that can fly. Okay, I know it's kind of a crazy example, but imagine if that happened. Okay, and that individual comes home for Christmas break, comes to College Park Fishers. We would welcome that individual. We would be proud of that individual. We would shake that person's hand. We would you know, show hospitality to that person. But probably none of us would actually purchase that car that can fly. It would be too costly for us. Okay? That's kind of what's happening here with Jesus. They're proud of Jesus. They're, they're aware of his message. But they're not buying what Jesus is selling because it's too costly. That his message is a message of full surrender and belief in him. They're only enamored with his signs and with his miracles. And so they welcome him, but they do not believe in him. They're friendly but unwilling to follow. Here's the third bizarre occurrence uh, that we see in this passage. It's just the way that Jesus handles this official, this individual. That this man has a son who's sick, who is dying, and he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal him. And yet, verse 48, Jesus responds with somewhat of a cold response. He says, unless you see signs and miracles, you will not believe. Now, that's a bizarre response from Jesus. Like, where's, where's the compassion? Where's the care? Where's the love? Where's the, the one who would bring the blind sight and heal the lame and, and cast out demons? All because he loves people. Well, this would be strange and bizarre if we believe that Jesus' miracles and Jesus' signs and healings were an end in themselves, but they're not. See, all throughout the Gospels, what we're going to see is that the reason why Jesus would heal people and the reason why he would perform miracles is that they were a means by which he would instill and grow faith and belief in other people. Okay, these are not a destination for people to be enamored, but there's something behind these miracles 
that he wants the people to respond to. And so the way that Jesus handles this official here, he's almost testing him. He's almost challenging him, trying to expose his motives. He's trying to see, is this official coming to me because I'm some genie that's going to perform a cure, or does this official really believe that I am the king of kings and he's willing to surrender his life to me? Yeah, all that to say, I just want to point out that motives matter when it comes to belief in Jesus. That the reason why you believe in God, is it because you can just get what you want in return? Is it you know, some type of genie just kind of rub the, the magic lamp of faith and he's going to give you your best life now? Or is it because you believe Jesus is the king of kings which demands full surrender to your life? Look, I love this passage. This passage is so, so rich. And one of the things that it does for us is it not only gives us an illustration of faith, but it also exposes common issues in our hearts that can stunt the growth of our faith. That we're going to see here, uh, those common issues is that we can treat God like a genie sometimes. We we can have self-sufficiency that crowds out faith in our own hearts. That we don't combat doubt with truth that we don't uh, allow faith to be put into practice, we don't live out in obedience what we know to be true, this official is going to demonstrate all the ways that we can actually grow through those common issues. Okay, now, the way I want to kind of explain this illustration of faith is I almost see four stages of faith in this official that I want to just point out for us. You can almost look at these like they're steps in the development and the improvement of our trust in God that I think this official walks through that every follower of Jesus should actually live out in his or her life. So four stages of faith from this individual. Here's number one. I think faith begins with desperation. Faith begins with... With desperation, this official, just want to explain who he is a little bit. He was a nobleman in the king's royal court. He was a servant of the king, most likely to the Roman emperor or to Herod Antipas. And here he comes to Jesus for a specific reason, that his son is dying. And so this man, he comes to Jesus out of desperation, out of a need, And what we see here is he understands that Jesus has some sort of power to meet his need. Now, as we saw on that map, this official is traveling from Capernaum to Cana. This would be about 20 miles. This would be almost a whole day's journey just to get to Jesus. Okay, he doesn't go to the Roman emperor. He doesn't go to Herod. He goes to Jesus, which implies that he actually had to leave the side of his dying son, Now imagine that, if you're a parent in the room, imagine leaving the side of your dying child to go and see Jesus. You understand you're going to be gone for a couple of days. Imagine the level of anxiety and and worry, wondering if my kid is going to die while I'm leaving here trying to find Jesus to come heal him. And we see a level of desperation in this official, in this individual to go find Jesus because he believes something about him. Now, this is usually how faith begins, isn't it? Usually faith begins out of a need. And that need usually creates a sense of desperation within our own hearts, 
where it leads us to seeking help, seeking God, because we're limited in our own resources, our own power, our own control. And so we're seeking something outside of ourselves. And unfortunately, that happens due to a trial, due to a crisis, due to some sort of pain in our lives, some sort of, uh, of health issue or a relationship ends, or we're having a job or financial, financial issues. Maybe we're struggling with depression or deep, profound dissatisfaction in life, whatever it is. And look, I'm looking at, I'm seeing, I know your stories. I know many of your testimonies. So many of you came to faith in Christ because of a trial, because of some sort of crisis. And look, praise God for that. Like, praise God that he used that trial to lead you to true faith, genuine faith in Jesus. And it, here's the challenge for us when we start a relationship with God out of desperation, is that over time, that desperation, which is created because that trial puts our neediness right in front of our face, is that over time, our self-sufficiency begins to crowd out that desperation and that neediness for God. That when we begin our relationship with God. We're on fire for him. We're all in for him. We are so passionate for him. Why? Because our neediness is before us. But over time, over months, over years, we kind of settle into this, this new normal with God where, yeah, we need him for our salvation, but day in, day out, do we really need him? And that's kind of the challenge that we face when we think about improving our faith, improving our trust, is how do we live in the present, the day-in, day-out life, out of desperation and out of a neediness with God? See, this, this official, his son's going to get healed, right? Verse 53 makes that clear. And yet, if we're honest, and I don't know if you can relate to this like me, it's sometimes easier to live by faith and to live by trust in verse 47 than it is to live in verse 53, isn't it? Like when you're in trial, when you're suffering, man, all I need is God. God's the only one that can, that can come through for me. But when things are easier, when you don't have that need, sometimes our faith and our dependency upon God takes the back seats. Look, I think one of the best ways to cultivate a desperation for God, and we preached a whole sermon series on August on that topic, but I think it's not looking at our present circumstances as a catalyst for our desperation. I think it's looking at our spiritual condition as the catalyst for cultivating that kind of, of, of desperation for him. Do we, do we really believe Jesus when he said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing? Like, do we honestly believe that? Do we get up in the morning open up the Bible and say, God, apart from you, I can do nothing today. I can't love my spouse. I can't love my kids. I can't love my coworkers. I can't walk in obedience apart from you today. Or does the self-sufficiency crowd into our hearts and convince us, no, no, you can, you can muster it up enough to, to live within your own strength and your own wisdom. This desperation is huge. This is how it begins, and this is also how we grow in our faith and in our trust. And this is what happens to this man, this official. He's got this desperation. He's living out of that desperation, and we see his faith develop. Here's the second stage in his faith that we see is his faith actually is persistent. It perseveres. In verse 47, we see that this man asks Jesus to come down and heal his son. 
Just to be kind of blunt here, that's a very tame translation of verse 47. That word, asked, asked Jesus, is the verb to beg. And it's the kind of tense where it implies a repeated, a continuous, a persistent action. Okay, so don't, don't think that this is kind of a casual conversation where he's like, Jesus, can you come and heal my son pretty please? Like he's not, no, no, he's probably on his knees before Jesus begging him to come and to heal his son. And as I pointed out before, verse 48, it's almost like Jesus kind of brushes him off. He kind of rebuffs the man and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, the you there is plural. Okay, it's most likely referring to the nation of Israel. He's kind of rebuking the whole nation here. But I really believe in this verse, Jesus is challenging the man. He's testing the man, trying to teach the man what it means to have genuine faith, to not trust in signs and miracles, but to trust and actually have the foundation of your faith be the words of Christ. He's exposing his motives, leading him to this place of genuine faith. I want to emphasize that because we actually see that come to fruition, that faith becomes a reality when we hear the words of Christ. What did Paul say in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And I love this because we actually see this taking place. This official doesn't stop in verse 47, but comes to Jesus again and asks him to heal his son. The, The boldness, the courage, the persistence And I want to point out that for most of us, and most of the time, we're only persistent with people that we trust and know will come through for us. Isn't that right? Like most of the time, that's true. I mean, I think about my my two-year-old Lila, who has become very persistent in wanting to watch TV uh, as of late. She's very persistent. Like she comes to me, and she says, Dada, watch a show? Watch a show, Dada? And sometimes she'll grab my face and like look me in the eyes, Dada, watch a show? And she's already mastered the puppy eye look somehow. And, and I'll respond, you know, no, like we're about to eat dinner. Like we can't do, I'm trying not to look at her. Like look away, you know, no eye contact. And, and she said, no, dad, dad, watch a show though. Watch a show. And in that moment, you know, my heart melts. I'm like, oh my goodness, she's so persistent. And, you know, most of the time I flex my leadership muscles within the household. And I say, well, go ask your mama, you know, go, go see what Lindsay has to say about that. But Lila, she's, she's showing that kind of persistence towards her, her daddy because she knows I'm going to come through for her. She's not showing that kind of persistence towards the cashier at Dairy Queen when she wants more ice cream, right? She doesn't know that cashier. She doesn't know that that cashier is going to come through for her. And so she's not persistent towards that individual, but she is with me. Here's the point. Your persistence in faith and prayer reveals what you actually believe about God. It reveals everything about what you claim to believe about God. And in fact, the reverse is true. Your lack of persistence reveals what you actually believe about God. Your persistence in faith, in prayer, reveals if you actually believe that God is good, that he doesn't withhold good things from his children It reveals if you believe that God is is all-powerful, that there's nothing he can't do. It reveals if you believe that God is all-loving, that he loves, he delights in hearing from his children over and over and over again, like the persistent widow in in Luke. 
It's like the, the psalmist in Psalm 116 where it says that God actually bends his ear. He inclines to hear from his own children. Your persistence reveals if you believe that. In fact, your lack of persistence is, is something that will not only lead you to missing out at God being at work, but it might also reveal some unbelief that's kind of running around in your heart. Look, can I challenge you with something in, in 2019 at the beginning of this year? Can I challenge you to maybe locate one area of your life that you maybe have given up on God with to work? Maybe you've stopped praying about something. Can I challenge you to, to pick that back up and to bring that before the Lord and say, God, I want to renew my persistence in this particular area of my life? Or maybe it's something about your marriage that you've said, man, my spouse, this, this will never work. This will never change. Can I challenge you to, to bring that before the Lord consistently, persistently, consistently? Is there something else in your life, maybe a child, something going on with parenting or the salvation of your child, however old that you're saying, no, God, I've stopped praying about this, but I need to pray and bring this before you. Maybe it's about a job or a health issue or whatever else it is. Maybe it's a, a sin that you're battling and battling and battling. I challenge you, be persistent. Bring it before the Lord because it's not only inviting God to be at work, but it's also revealing that you believe he's all-powerful, that he's good, and that he's all-loving. And in his perfect timing, in his perfect plan, he will work. Be persistent. And this official demonstrates that so beautifully. Well, it feels like we've seen so much from this man already. He's desperate. He's persistent. But maybe most importantly, number three here, he's obedient in his faith. He's obedient in verses 50 through 51, we see the official's faith grow leaps and bounds here. We've seen that he goes to Jesus twice, and he asks Jesus for Jesus to come down and, and visit with him and his son to heal him. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't do what this man says. He doesn't go to Capernaum with him, but Jesus responds and says, You go, for your son lives, implying that I've healed him. And this man actually does what Jesus says. He leaves Jesus and he goes. And as he's on his way back, the servants meet him and say, your son is recovering, your son is healed. But let me point out maybe the most important aspect of this passage. The official here actually obeys Jesus based on Jesus' words and not based on Jesus' miracle or signs or power here. This man does not see the results of Jesus' miracle here. He doesn't see the power, but he responds in faith because of the words of Christ, Romans 10, 17. But look, this is crazy. Like, for you parents out there, I don't think I would have done this. Like, if, if I'm the father here, there's no way I'm leaving Cana without Jesus being on the same horse as mine going back to Capernaum. But he, he leaves and, and he goes because he's demonstrating true faith. Look, if he refused to go back to Capernaum without Jesus, that would have revealed he did not have genuine faith. And yet he leaves with no outward assurance that his son would get better. And this is faith and trust in action. No sign, no miracle that generated his faith. It was the words of Jesus. And I think at this moment, he starts to develop his faith from viewing Jesus as a genie to viewing Jesus as the King of Kings. Look, this is how our faith grows. 
When we obey what God has told us to do, when we don't feel like it, when it's hard, when it's inconvenience, when it's countercultural, when it may be illogical at times, and when we still choose to believe in what God has said is true, that's when the muscles of our faith start to get stronger, and that's when we start to grow. In the 1800s, some of you have heard the story before, but there was a famous tightrope walker who actually stretched out his rope across Niagara Falls. And I don't know if you've heard of this story before, but stretched out his rope across Niagara Falls in front of this large crowd, and he actually walks across Niagara Falls. Now, I'm, I'm scared of heights. It just makes my palms sweaty just thinking about it. But he does that, and the crowd goes crazy. A large crowd. They start to applaud. He gets to the other side where the crowd is, and as they're cheering, he says to them, all right, now, who believes that I can walk across that rope again with someone on my shoulders? And the crowd erupts and says, yes, you can. They're all raising their hand. We believe that you can do this. And then he says, okay, well, who wants to actually get on my shoulders and, and walk across with me? And the crowd goes quiet. All the hands, you know, lower, and, and there's, not, there's no one that really believes. A couple of minutes go by, and, and there's this small boy. He's actually the son of the tightrope walker. He raises his hand. He says, Daddy, I trust that you can do it. Let's do it. And so he gets up on his dad's shoulders, and of course they walk across the tightrope, no problem. But the difference between the crowd and the child is that that son had complete dependence, complete trust in his father, and he demonstrated it when he put his faith in action. Look, in the same way, there are many who claim to believe in God. There are many who claim to believe in Jesus, and yet their life does not reflect that reality. That they're not putting their faith in action. They're not putting into practice what they believe to be true in God's word, and yet within the economy of God's kingdom, faith and obedience, two sides of the same coin. You cannot believe without obeying what God has said to be true. We love to say we believe in this, we believe in that, that promise is true, yes, but does your life reflect that? C.S. Lewis um, puts it better than I can. He says this about faith and obedience. He says, To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you're trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already not hoping to get to heaven as a, as a re reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. Now, what does that look like practically, right? To put your faith into action through obedience. Well, take, for example, fear. Let's say you're someone that's struggling with fear. There's something in your life that's causing fear to occur in your own heart. And yet, let's also say that you're one who believes in the Bible. You believe that the Bible is true. Okay, you believe 2 Peter 1.3, that God through his divine power has given you everything you need to live a godly life. Let's say you believe Psalm 55.22, to cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. 
So you believe in Isaiah 40.10 where God tells us, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Okay, let's say you believe all those things in the Bible and yet you still have this thing that's causing you fear and for you to actually live in fear. How do you bridge the gap? How do you allow what you know to be true to impact your fear, so you're no longer walking in fear, but you're walking by faith. Well, what bridges the two very simply is obedience. It is taking what you know to be true and doing what God says. Now, here's the hard part, is that typically all that we can see is our fear. We we can't always see the promises of God, like cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. What does that even mean? Like, how can you, you can't really see that. You have to trust that by faith. But that thing that's causing fear within your own heart, you can see it. It's captivating your mind. It's captivating your heart. It's probably something very tangible in your life. And yet the Bible calls us to walk by faith, not by sight, and to do what he's asked us to do, to cast, keep casting that burden, and he will come through for you by sustaining you. Look, sometimes we just live by sight. We, we live by what we feel instead of living by faith. Look, sometimes we're just enslaved to what we feel. And I've said this before, but your feelings are real. They just cannot be authoritative. You can't allow those feelings to dictate how it is that you live because sometimes they're opposite of faith. They're opposite of what God is calling you to do. And so whatever it is in your life, if, if it's fear, if it's lust, if it's anger, if it's pride, anxiety, whatever it is, you are always being confronted with this decision. Am I going to walk by sight or am I going to walk by faith, trusting in what God has said is true and putting it into practice? And we see this official do exactly that. So all he could see was his son's sickness. It's what he could see. It's what he knew to be true. And yet he hears the words of Christ go. Your son will live, and he puts that into practice. That's when our faith really starts to grow in our lives. Well, there's one more thing I want to point out. We've seen this individual's faith grow and develop these different stages, desperation, persistence, obedience. Last thing I want to point out here is that his faith actually becomes contagious. His faith begins to spread That when you look at the end of verse 53, as he gets home, he sees that his son has been healed. Notice what it says there. It says, and he himself believed in all his household. That's where you see faith in action. That's where you see the strength of your faith when it starts to impact the people around you, the people in your circle of influence that actually becomes contagious. And this is the pattern that we see all throughout the Bible. We see people get saved, put their faith in Jesus. What's one of the first things they do? They share it with other people. Think about the, um, the demon-possessed man in Luke chapter 8. God, Jesus heals him, frees him, but he believes in Jesus, and he tells all of these towns around him about who Jesus is. Think about the woman at the well last week. What did she do when, when she put her faith in Jesus? She told the whole town. You think about the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, after Paul leads him to Christ, he tells his household and his whole household gets baptized. This is the normative pattern within the scriptures. You believe in Jesus and it spreads 
to other people. But look, this is the hardest part about faith. I think there's a reason why I put this at the end. This is the reason why it's the last stage, because it's the hardest. You have to think outside of yourself. How can I grow? How can I believe more? And think about, how can I share this with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus yet? Or how can I help other people around me grow in a greater trust in the Lord? And yet, it's one of the greatest challenges in the Christian life. And so, do you have a plan for how to grow the trust and the faith of those around you into believing God more? Parents, do you have an intentional game plan for your kids to not just change their behavior, not just to conform their behavior to what you want, but to help them to see Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, and to believe in Jesus more? Okay, if you're in a small group, are you helping other people to believe in Jesus more? Your coworkers, are you thinking through, okay, who are the Christians who, who aren't the people who haven't accepted Christ yet? Can I, can I figure out a game plan to impact them and allow my faith to be contagious? Like if you're thinking about some type of way to do that within your family or within your circle of influence, as Dustin announced uh, earlier in the service, there's a, a reading game plan for the whole year just to read through Scripture, have those questions. It's a great way for you to disciple, for you to grow the faith of those around you. Just a good resource. But healthy, thriving, developing faith will inevitably lead to impacting those around you. In fact, I think the scriptures would challenge us today and would say, if it's not impacting those around you in your circle of influence, I think the scriptures would say, is it really genuine? Is it really alive? Is it really developing? So I just want to challenge you this year to think through how to impact those around you for the glory of Jesus. A developing faith is one that's growing deep within and wide throughout. Well, as we close this morning, the worship team is going to come back out for one last song. But before they do, I just, as we start a new year, I just want to give us maybe 60 seconds, maybe two minutes just to just to reflect on this passage and this topic, I, I would just want to give us some space. Maybe there's something in your life that God has been revealing that you need to trust him more with. Maybe one of these four stages you're looking at and you're like, man, I'm really weak here, that you're thinking, I need to invest more of my time and energy to grow. Maybe there's an area, maybe it's your marriage or your finances or a job or your kids or some area of your life that you need to bring before God and say, God, I need to renew my trust in you. Maybe it's your salvation today. Maybe you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time to realize that Jesus doesn't stay here in Cana, but he'll actually end up in Jerusalem and he'll die on a cross in order to pay for the sins of the world. And maybe you want to learn more about what that looks like and to put your faith in Jesus. We'd love to talk to you after the service for you to begin your faith journey. But we just want to give the next couple of moments for you just to do some business with the Lord and allow something in your life to just bring it before him and allow him to work. So let's just take the next couple of moments and the worship team will then lead us with one last song.